the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. A lawyer stood up, wanting to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, it is written in the law. What do you read there? He answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, You've given the right answer. Now do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by him on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and he bandaged him and his wounds after pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, 
go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If someone were to ask you the question, what is the key to true life? What would you say? I suspect that for most of us, the answer to true life would not include fame or riches or trophies or accomplishments. I suspect that most of us would say that the key to finding true life is in our relationships with other people, family and friends, with those relationships that have been both forged and nurtured in love. When it all comes down to it, I think that most of us would say that the key to true life is love. That's, that's what matters the most. Fair enough. But inevitably what happens when we underscore the importance of love is that there is always a follow-up question. If love is what matters the most, then what does it mean to love? In particular, what does it mean to love people who are hard to love? What does it mean to love? How should we love? Whom should we love? And how much should we love them? Therefore, it should be no surprise that in this witty repartee between Jesus and the lawyer, in which the answer to the primary question is love, the lawyer immediately follows up with that very same follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? And I'd suggest to you that the answer to that follow-up question is as important as the question itself. It is critical not only for each of us as individuals to figure out how to love but it is also important for a congregation like ours, whose third core value is to be warm-hearted. And it seems clear that in this story of the Good Samaritan, to love in a very real way means to love people who are different from us. That's what real love looks like. And in the Gospel of Luke, in the story of the Good Samaritan, there is one key ingredient to learning how to love just like that. And it is found in the two simple words, drawing near. It's interesting, as often as I have read and preached the story of the Good Samaritan, there is an aspect of this story that I had not yet identified until this time around. And it occurs in verse 33. After we hear how the Levites and the priests went out of their way, as Mary Lou just showed us, to go around this poor victim who was lying on the side of the road, along comes a Samaritan, a foreigner, an outsider, and you would least expect to be the hero of the story. And we're told by Luke that before he does any bandaging of the wounds... Before he anoints any oil, he transports this poor victim to the inn. The very first thing that he does is he draws near to the man. It's two words in English. 
happens to be a very important word for Luke. This is that word over and over again in the Gospels. Like that time when Jesus drew near in relation to a hemorrhaging woman, when that woman drew near to Jesus and found healing. It's the same verb that Luke uses when he describes the feeding of the multitude, that hungry throng in the feeding of the 5,000. It's the very same verb that Luke uses to describe the exorcism of the demons in the possessed man. In other words, in Luke's gospel, there is anyone drawing near. Healing happens. The key to loving others who are different from us, the key to being a warm-hearted congregation, the key to being a person who is open to a diversity of people is first and foremost to draw near to them. And that is hard. And it happens so rarely because the default human condition for most of us is not to analyze and label rather than to find commonality. It's to build walls instead of bridges. It's to draw circles to define who is in and who is out. And inevitably, we draw those circles around ourselves. In other words, our default position is to be Levites and priests. And to go out of our way, avoid people who are different from us, or worse. I have rarely shared this story in public, let alone from the pulpit. But the very first encounter I ever had to this default human condition came to me in an experience at an early age. When I was six years old, I was a first grader in my private, mostly Anglo, school. As such, it was clear to some kids just how different I appeared compared to everybody else. For most of my first and second grade years, I was a favorite target of a group of boys who taunted me and teased me regularly like ritual every single recess, every day on the playground. I can remember their faces. I can still remember their names. Chris, Derek, Matthew. Normally a preacher changes the names of individuals in a story to protect their identity. But it's my turn. <laughs> you know, they never hurt me physically. But they pointed. They laughed. They teased. They made gestures. They talked to other kids about me. Day after day after day. One day I came to school with my most favorite toy in the whole world. I had just watched the first Star Wars movie, and soon afterwards, my parents bought me my very own replica of a Star Wars land speeder. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a 
brown molded plastic, really cool sticker decals, retractable wheels and a pop-up hood and action figures with Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. I loved it. I played with it. And I brought it to school one day. One particular recess, I found myself playing with that land speeder on a patch of ground next to a tree in the playground. And then along came the boys again. And the taunting and teasing resumed. In a sheer act of desperation, I offered them my land speeder in exchange for them to stop the bullying. And they did for a while. The bullying didn't totally stop until I'd gotten to third grade when they moved away out of town and there wasn't a bully to take their place. You know, I don't think about the bullying much anymore. Hardly crosses my mind. I don't think it's had any lasting, long lingering damage on my psyche, although that's very possible that it's deeply embedded in my subconscious. I'd like to think that I've moved on and gotten healing from that. You want to know why? Let me give you some other names. Steve, Eliza, Matt, David, Chris, Danny, Chrissy. Those are names of other classmates, other people that I grew up with in that very same school. You know what they did? They chose not to listen to what the bullies were saying about me. They chose not to make a big deal of what I looked like or where I came from. Instead, they chose to look deep down below the surface at my character, at my personality. Eventually, they became friends with me. You know why? Well, because if Luke were telling the story of my life, he would say that those people drew near to me. And that's, that's how the healing started. I once heard a sermon on the Good Samaritan preached by a man named Bart Campolo. Bart Campolo is the son of the famous author and speaker Tony Campolo. And he began his sermon with a question that gripped my imagination. He asked the congregation, as Jesus was telling the story of the Good Samaritan, which one of the characters do you think Jesus himself was identifying with? What an imaginative question. As I thought through my own response to that question, I quickly settled on an answer. Obviously, at least it was to me, if Jesus was going to pick a character to identify with, it would have to be the Good Samaritan himself. I mean, after all, this is Jesus, who was in many ways a foreigner, an outsider to the human experience, yet he crossed the barriers in order to give of himself so that someone else might find healing. He had the compassionate heart. He gave of his life so that this poor individual, like all of us, might live. Of course, Reverend Campolo, Jesus was the good Samaritan. It's all very well and good. 
until Bart Compolo gave his answer to the question, which was an utter surprise to me. He said, what if, of all the characters in the Good Samaritan parable, the one that Jesus identified with the most was the poor, half-dead, beaten victim lying on the side of the road? What if that's Jesus in the story? And he reminded us that in another gospel, Jesus went so far to say, That when you see someone who is naked and hungry and thirsty, imprisoned and sick, when you care for the least of these, you care for Jesus himself. What if Jesus is the victim in the story? I like Compolo's conclusion. I like his interpretation very much for two reasons. One is because it is a reminder to me That in the Bible, God always sides with the bullied. And God never sides with the bullies. God always sides with the victim, with the powerless, with the helpless, with those who have been pushed to the fringe of society, marginalized because of the default human condition in our culture. And the other reason that I like his interpretation is just as important because it is a reminder that when we draw near to people who are different from us or who disagree with us, when we look into their eyes and we see their faces, we see the face of none other than Jesus himself. And we see in their face our common humanity and our common kindred connection as children of God. Now, imagine. Imagine what that change of perspective might do in the way we live in the world today. Imagine what that shift in perception might do to address all of the major headlines that are gripping us in the world today. What would that do to cities like Tulsa and Charlotte and so many other cities in this country that have been gripped by the viral plague of racial injustice that has been spreading throughout this country? What would that change of perspective do in the way that we see immigrants and refugees? What would drawing near to people who are different from us do in the way we see people who are poor? Or in the way that we see the disparity between opportunity and upward mobility between men and women. What would it look like? Would it change the way we see each other? Last week I shared with you how my college experience helped me shed some of my fundamentalist and literalist views of the Bible. And today I want to share with you a similar story, not not from college, but in the ensuing years in grad school, in seminary, which helped change a perception I had of a different part of my belief system. Down the hall of my seminary apartment building lived a woman named Ellen. Ellen is her real name. She gave me her permission, too. 
to share her story and her real name. Ellen was a seminary student, just like me. She was seeking ordination, just like me. She wanted to be a minister in the United Methodist Church, just like me. Every fiber of Ellen's being loved the United Methodist Church. It's the church in which she was born, which forged her faith, which nurtured her along her journey. She loved everything about the Methodist Church. She loved the theology. She loved its emphasis on mission and outreach and service. She loved feeling so connected by the connectional system to Christians and Methodists all around the globe. Everything about the Methodist Church she loved. Ellen had a keen mind, was a beautiful preacher, had a pastor's heart, had a loving and gentle spirit. In just about every way, she was the ideal, perfect package of what you would want in a minister. And as I got to know her, I realized that I wish someday that I could be the kind of minister that Ellen was surely destined to be. One of the things she gave me was her love for United Methodist hymns. One day, one evening, a few of us gathered in her apartment on the same floor of our building. One of us brought a keyboard. Someone else brought a hymnal. And we then started to call out some of our favorite Methodist hymns. One by one, we sang them, sang some of our favorites. I, I offered that we sing my favorite one, Be Thou My Vision. She wanted us to sing her favorite hymn, To Us Venido a la Orio, Lord, You Have Come to the Lake Shore, which she wants to have played in her own funeral someday. We sang all sorts of hymns, many of which I had never sung, lots of which I had never heard. And minutes became hours, and before we knew it, it was late at night, and we had sung just about every hymn in the book. And then Ellen decided to share a little bit about who she was. It was in that moment that she decided to tell us privately that she was a lesbian. And it was at that moment that I realized that Ellen had just become the very first gay or lesbian friend I had ever had. And then she shared her story, how she felt it necessary to hide who she really was in order to pursue ordination in the United Methodist Church. And then she posed the dilemma to me in a way that I'd never heard or understood it before. She said, how, how could God create me this way? And how could the way that God has called me into ministry be at such odds with one another? How could the way that God has created me and so clearly called me into ministry feel so mutually exclusive? That was at the heart of her painful dilemma. And I saw in her face the pain, the difficulty she lived day by day at that site. Trying to appreciate who she was, yet trying to pursue who God was calling her to be. And as I drew near... 
to the very first gay or lesbian friend I ever had. Instantly, the LGBT community were challenged. Because in her face, when I looked in Ellen's face, I saw two things. One, I saw the face of Jesus. Two, I saw the face of a six-year-old version of myself. The face of someone who was tired of being bullied, tired of feeling so put down and beat down. And it became clear to me, perhaps for the very first time, that if her orientation was a choice, then no one in their right mind would want to choose to be bullied. No one would want to choose this kind of impossible dilemma. A few years ago, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I attended a very special worship service. It was the ordination service of my friend Ellen. She had finally become a minister in another denomination. I was thrilled for my friend. I was happy for Ellen. But I was also sad. Sad for the tough choice to make. And sad because of the reality that even though Ellen would still be my friend, I couldn't call her a colleague in the United Methodist Church. Friends, the conversation about homosexuality in the United Methodist Church is complicated. But gay and people are not complications. That much is clear to me. And it's also clear to me that if being warm-hearted is one of our core values... It means that we get to be open to a diversity of people, regardless of where they came from or how old they are or what gender they might be or what their social status might be or who they love. And so I want you to know that if you're in the sanctuary this morning or watching this service online, and if there has ever been a part of you that has felt bullied for who you are, you are loved in this place. And I love you as your pastor. And I can speak on behalf of the other clergy when I tell you that you are loved. That we not only welcome you here, we not only tolerate you here, but we accept you for who you are. Because when we see your face, we see the victim on the side of the road. We see the bullied in the playground. And we even see the self. And there's something else. This is just as important for me to say. I also want you to know that if for any reason you find yourself on the other side of this conversation... If you find your own conclusions on this matter on the opposite side of what I've described, then I want you to know 
that you are loved in this place as well. And I love you as your pastor. And I know I can speak on behalf of the other clergy when I tell you that you are loved, despite of our differences, no matter how we might disagree. Because as Wesley said, even though we may think alike, shall we not love alike? Because in the end, that is what real love looks like. And uh, it also looks like this. It's a Star Wars land speeder. It's a gift to me last year on Father's Day from my two daughters. You know why this is what love looks like to me? Because it's a symbol of the love of two daughters for their father. But it's also a reminder of what real love looks like when we draw near past our differences in order to love other people. It's what love can look like when a congregation like ours becomes warm-hearted and decides to be open to loving a diversity of people regardless of who they are. It looks like a church that boldly bears witness to the world that we will not be defined by our differences, but by our common humanity and our common commitment to the mission and vision of this church, which is to make God's love real. This is what love looks like. Love looks like Jesus in the face of someone else. And love happens when we draw near to people who are different from us. In the name of our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, Amen.